You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Welcome to the Transformative Podcast with me, Rosamond Johnston. And for today's episode, we're speaking to Katarzyna Lyskova, who's currently based at the Institute of History of the Czech Academy of Sciences in Prague. And she's leading there an interdisciplinary group looking into expertise in authoritarian societies. And the name of the project is Expert Turn. Among other things, she's the author of multiple articles and in 2018, a very good prize-winning book called Sexual Liberalisation Socialist Style, Communist Czechoslovakia and the Science of Desire, 1945 to 1989. And that was brought out by Cambridge University Press. So, Katarzyna, very nice to speak to you today. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. A fundamental way for kind of the structuring of your current project is this comparative approach to uh, state socialism across Eastern Europe. You've said before that you think it's really important to take a comparative approach. And I wanted to ask you why you think this. And, you know, based on your past research into sexuality, your current research into expertise more generally, whether you think that state socialism in some ways kind of led to a homogenization or whether that kind of coherence across the region never really occurred? I think there are definitely important similarities across socialist Eastern European countries, and they are very different from what was happening at that time in the West. Specifically, the beginning of state socialism, the 1950s mostly, were across the board in all these countries marked by the accent or emphasis on gender equality, because we know about class equality in social societies, but gender equality as well, which manifested both in laws and again we know about higher education opening up to women and labor participation, numbers of women increasing in all the countries. And we also need to realize that in the realm of sexuality and more broadly, family, the family codes were adopted, which made the standing of women equal to men's in marriage and towards children. And that was happening at the same time in the early 50s, late 40s in some countries already, beginning of state socialism. So there is this emphasis on gender equality, which is very similar, both in timing and also different from the West. And then there is some diversity going on as socialism progresses, because especially the countries which at the beginning of state socialism did not have broad discourses on sex, let alone openness in sexual issues, develop those discourses and openness. And that would be mostly the case of Hungary and to some extent also East Germany. And then other countries such as Poland and maybe even more pronouncedly Czechoslovakia, which had sexual discourses and in case of Czechoslovakia, some sexual openness, gravitate towards more restricted approach and definitely change their outlook on gender. Both of these countries, Poland and Czechoslovakia, as time goes on, delve into more of, say, gender traditionalism as in retreating from the egalitarian 
approaches that they both were such proponents of in the early socialist years. So um, going back to what you were saying about the early period of massive revolutionary change in terms of thinking about gender, to what extent are some of those experts that you looked at in your book, to what extent is it helpful to see them as kind of important forebears of some of the debates we're having today? So people who thought that it was important, for example, that women would have orgasms. Or to what extent do you find in your research that there are important historical ruptures perhaps 1989, that just mean that the debates that were taking place then aren't really easily mappable onto debates about gender and sexuality we're having now. There is definitely more of a connection between late state socialism and post-socialism, just because the experts who were prominent then, many of them, lived and were influential for many years, even decades after 1989, which has to do to a large extent also with the technological change that occurred, because these experts who were then known in post-socialism and, and remain influential were influential because of TV, which was gaining influence, and also a mass production of books, which started happening in the 1960s and definitely by the 70s, 80s. There were a lot, a lot of self-help books being published in our countries about how to live happily in marriage, how to enjoy sex, what are the best positions for these types of bodies and couples and what is better for somebody else. So all these very kind of almost tailor-made approaches were being put out there among people. And many authors who wrote them and appeared on TV, stayed on TV and stayed influential in post-socialist times as well. What level of detail is it meaning for you and the researchers you work with to dive into when you're thinking about these experts? Are there moments where people listen to experts more and people listen to them less? Are there questions to do with their own gender, sexuality, age that kind of affect the authority they can have in the society in which they are working? I think experts were having a lot of say throughout socialism. They had relative large freedom, especially in medical sciences, to conduct research as they saw fit. And that is important to realize, maybe as opposed to pure social sciences or disciplines such as philosophy, which were heavily restricted at various points in time in various countries. Here, when we are talking about sex, we are to a large extent talking about medical doctors, especially at the beginning. So in the countries where this form of expertise is audible from the start of socialism, which is specifically Czechoslovakia, those were medical doctors from the start. Of course, as time went by, supplemented by psychologists and other experts. In other countries, it was medical doctors and other experts, but maybe more so in the 70s and 80s, when these disciplines were more rehabilitated, let's say, disciplines such as psychology. But medical doctors had the ear of the state and relative freedom to conduct their research and clinical practice. And what is also important and what we do in our research is not necessarily to look at biographies of individual people, but look at expert networks. There it becomes very clear and important that it matters a great deal 
that when looking at the early socialist period, there are experts working in our countries who got at least part of their education abroad, typically in German-speaking countries. And those experts are still there with their networks and knowledge and expertise that they gained internationally. And then they train other people, their pupils who become practitioners and who themselves, many of them, will go on to have some short research stays abroad in the 60s, in the 70s. So that creates a picture in which expertise in East Europe is never fully cut off from the Western developments, which is very important to realize because people have the idea of especially the 1950s of Stalinist times as a time when everything was just behind the Iron Curtain. And while this curtain definitely existed for normal people and while many people suffered, obviously, these experts, and again, I will say that again, especially medical experts, were never fully cut off and were always up to speed with international developments. They kept reading the books and articles. They kept in touch with what their colleagues in Western or also importantly in the Nordic countries, what they were doing and researching. So there was a whole network of expertise going on in medicine, which never stopped. And that is very important to realize when we talk about state socialism and expertise and what was influential in biographies and I would rather in expert networks. It's interesting in comparison to the research that I've done before on journalists, right, who are another sort of cultural elite. In Czechoslovakia, 1968, it sort of decimates networks and certainly decimates the radio, which specifically would be the institution that I would be looking at. Can you maybe talk a little bit about the specifics then of medical experts? How are they sheltered in a way that media professionals are not from these kind of seismic domestic political events? I'll put it maybe a bit crudely, but I think everybody will be able to realize what I mean. Every state realizes that they need medical doctors to the extent that they don't need journalists. And as a sociologist, I might say that they don't need sociologists. You just some forms of expertise are, even though it pains me to admit that, less important than others. Like medical doctors are unquestionably important. There is also a very interesting kind of subchapter to that in Czechoslovakia, because of course sexologists, there was one point in time when even they were seen as maybe it's too much, maybe, which was 1952-1953, but it was again networks which saved them, specifically networks with gynecologists, because we know about the socialist state that it was very much interested in reproduction, right? And that's when gynecologists come to the fore, and they were sharing their knowledge and inviting sexologists. And when these doubts were raised, like, is sexology needed? Isn't it a bourgeois endeavor? The gynecologists were right there saying, no, 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 it's very important. We need them. And sexologists themselves um, acknowledged that it was to a large extent due to gynecologists that there were, even during those heightened years, allowed to keep doing their clinical practice and research. Okay, so I'll end with a massive question, which is you have written, and you're not alone in this, Michel Foucault has written that sex shows us some important dynamics of power. So to be quite specific, what can sex show us about power in state socialist Eastern Europe? There is something 
else that we discover about the state and how it was organized and what its priorities were when we look at this very intimate part of human life, which is sexuality and the issues connected to sexuality. Because if people were to study, of course did study, the state via the state itself, mainly its political representation and the Communist Party and Politburo, they are finding different things which are maybe difficult to apply to how normal people lived. People might feel disconnected with that or it might give us only a partial image of what the state looked like and what its priorities were when you looked only at the ruling class and the Communist Party and their documents. But when you start looking at this expertise, which was deriving its knowledge from the people, trying to speak to people and then to the state to make policies and guidelines that they saw fit for the people they themselves met on a daily basis, then you see a different image, which is not entirely different as in you can still see the priorities of the state. As I said earlier, there is still a very visible priority of gender equality at the beginning of the regime. There is the priority of the family and what is good for the family. Let's look into that. Let's let's deliver there as well. So these priorities are there so you can study them from that perspective. But then you see much more specific approaches and policies and even medical discoveries that speak to much more everyday level than if you look at, say, some party documents alone. Katarina Lishkova, thank you very much. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Transformative Podcast. You have been listening to the Transformative Podcast produced by Red Set in Vienna.